four, three. These last five are accurate. So Wednesday night, and we're talking about a subject that's been one of the most uh, enigmatic, whatever that means, <laughs> things I've ever talked about. And it's kind of a shady understanding. And I've looked in, I've got a very formidable library. I've got several thousand books in it, some of the best books in the world to study. And uh, I've been looking for this particular thing to get the best answer I can. And most people don't know anything about this. Most of them just look at it and go, well, what does that mean? Well, I've got a book here. When you're going to study the Bible, you need to study three different things. You need to study in the first century. First century. You had to study Roman law, which there's not a lot to understand about that. You've got a time that Paul was put in prison in that 16th chapter of Acts. And it was against Roman law to beat a Roman citizen. It was against the law. You could really get in trouble for that. Well, they didn't know that Paul being a Jew was a Roman citizen. When Paul was born, he was born in Tarsus up here, uh, up here right close to Turkey and kind of in the... In Turkey, that was called Asia Minor. And Tarsus had been made, all the citizens had been made citizens of the Roman Empire when he was born. So he was not only a Jew, he was also a Roman citizen. And they beat Paul, and at the end of the 16th chapter, the jailers come in and said, you can leave. He said, I'm not leaving. Did you know I'm a Roman citizen and you beat me? And boy, they got in a sweat. Well, come on, Mr. Paul. Why don't you leave? Finally, he left. They could be in trouble for that. That was a Roman law. But if you don't know that by reading uh, something besides the Bible, you're not going to know why he sat there. You have to know that. And you have to know Greek language. Greek culture. And the Romans didn't have much culture, and they didn't have any languages to speak of. A lot of them spoke Latin. But the international language at that time was Greek, one of two things in the Greek. It was either the Koine Greek. That was a street language. That was what the average working class guy spoke. K-O-I-N-E, it comes from the word K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, which is the word fellowship, partaker, and there's a couple of, there's a word that people use on the front of words, it's a prefix, it's called soon, or soom or sug, or su. It always means to blend together in fellowship. It's a word, it's a prefix they put on a word, soon and soon. It's a prefix they put on a word to keep having put 
for fellowship on the front of a word. So they had the Corne Greek and they had the Attic Greek. Well, the Corne Greek, they had a different dialect in every city-state. If you were not real educated like Paul was, you couldn't travel anywhere and really make your way in the world of that first century because if you went from Jerusalem up here to Antioch, they're, pre- they're speaking a different dialect. These dialects would differ as much as Spanish and Italian in our day and time. Just because you can speak Spanish and it's a Latin-based language and, and Italian is a Latin-based language, don't mean you can, you'll recognize a word once in a while, like Diabolos is the same in Italian as Spanish and Greek. But it doesn't mean you can speak the language. So if when the, the apostles were told, they're, they're from northern Israel, all 11 apostles are from somewhere in the neighborhood of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus called his apostles from. Then, of course, the Jordan River runs down, empties into the Dead Sea right here. And only Judas was from southern Israel or the land of Judah. Only Judas. Judas. So the apostles were from up here in northern Galilee. They actually had a Samaritan a Samaritan form of the dialect of the Corne. In fact, when Peter came down here to Jerusalem and he was warming his hands at the fire when Jesus was being taken by the Roman soldiers to stand before Pilate the next day, Peter's warming his hands by the fire and a woman walks up and said, you're one of that man's apostles, aren't you? He cursed and said, I am not. She said, I can tell your speech berayeth you or betrays you. Because Peter spoke, absolutely had to have spoke the corne of Galilee. But he's down here, and she said, I can tell by your speech where you're from. So you had to, that's why, I'll say it again, as long as I'm on the subject, they had the Jews had been scattered to every nation under heaven, and when they're coming back from every nation, when they're coming back, they'd been scattered because they went after that fire and tree worship, so they're all over the world, and they got three festivals that they all had to come back to. This comes out of the Compendia, and they're all coming back to Jerusalem for those festivals, and they're coming from everywhere. That's God's law. That's for the devout Jews from every nation under heaven. And they're all speaking a different dialect. And the Bible says that every man heard Peter speak in his own tongue, but the word is dialect, wherein he was born. That's not Pentecostal tongues. Now, let's get on with this. The Attic Greek is something that only scholars would speak. It was difficult. We don't even have that in our schools. and We don't even distribute that among our churches. It was extremely difficult. Only scholars spoke the Attic Greek. So, we've got Greek language. You have to know that. You've got Greek culture, Greek philosophies. That's why, that is why that they had all of the Greek, 
but they didn't have Roman culture. Romans were as barbaric as the barbarians that went out and slaughtered because they would turn the Christians and the Jews over to the lions and the gladiators and they'd take them and kill them. They were doing that all the way up to Constantine in 320, well, actually 312 A.D. 312. We issued the Edict of Toleration, said we'll quit killing Christians. So you have you have the Greek, the Attic, and they had the philosophies. Now, when you get to the philosophies, you get into Stoic, Epicureans. These were the most popular philosophies of the first century, the Stoics and Epicureans. I've gone into that to some degree. And this and Paul used these words or the way they spoke. He used their terminology. It's kind of like if you're going to connect with the American people, it depends on where you're going to go. Are you going to go among the upper class and are you going to try to talk to the wealthy or the uh, rich bankers and lawyers you got to talk in their language but if you're going to talk to the common man out here in america you got to speak their language you got to say hey man that's cool or what's happening here you got you had to use what was important i'll get back to this about the greeks in just a minute but you had to do one other thing you had to study Greek culture and all of Paul's 14 books were written to the Greek people. All of Romans, that was Greek. We might say that was Gentiles. Gentile and Greek were the same thing. Let me see here. I'll leave it here. All right. So, but you had to understand, if you're reading Jesus' words in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's going on in Israel, isn't it? That's in Israel. That's in this area here. Jesus even told the apostles, don't go to the Gentiles yet in Matthew 10, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the ten lost tribes. Why did he say that? Because the Pharisees were ruling everything down here in southern Judah. And to go to the ten lost tribes means you're going to go to northern Israel where they had a mixture of Assyrians and Jews with a mixed religion. When the Assyrians came in, they came in and established their government here and brought their son and tree gods in to be mixed with Jehovah worship. I've said it many times. That's why Jesus stood and told the woman at the well of Samaria. He said, you worship, you know not what there in John 4. Because it's such a mixed religion. Now, in order to study the Jews in the first century and taking in the culture of the Jews of the Old Testament, you have to study writers like Alfred Edersheim.
Alfred Edersheim was a Jew. He was born in 1825. He died in 1889. And Mr. Edersheim, being a Jew, was converted to Christianity. He became a Christian. And he and Mr. Edersheim had, he wrote four excellent books. He actually wrote five books. But the one you can't get is on Elijah. It's real hard to find it. Elijah. Or Elisha, excuse me. It's on Elisha. But you can order from Christian book distributors. You can order. I'm getting to some points here. You can order Mr. Edersheim's book from Christian book distributors. He's got one called uh, Life in Times. Times of Jesus the Messiah. And he will give you Jewish culture, Jewish understanding. I probably got one right here. Here it is. Right here. And here's his book. I've got one here and I got one at home. Because I want to be his this book is extremely difficult to read. Get into all the different Herods and the them courting the Caesars and trying to work their way up so they can be. A, the Herods were not Jews. Herods were from this area down here, which is the land of Esau. Esau. They were Edomites. Edom. Edom is another name for Esau. Edomites or Idumea. Where does the king have to come from in Israel? He has to come from Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. So during the days of Jesus, when these Herods were ruling, in order to understand this book, you need to go back here in the back of the book Look a subject up and go to those pages of the subject and read two or three pages before and two or three pages after and you'll understand. That's what I've learned about reading. Extremely difficult. The amount of historical figures in here are overwhelming. I've had people come and say, Jim, I've tried to read Life and Times of Jesus and Messiah. I said, don't read it. Use it as a reference book and open it up. You'll look up a subject. Look it up. and then you have Mr. Edersheim has got a couple other books he's got one I don't know if I have it down here Uh, there you go it's got here's two other books by him he's got one called sketches of the Jewish social life he'll tell you how the Jews were still talking about Mr. Edersheim over here he will tell you what they did in their everyday life he'll tell you how that in this book he'll tell you how that when a rabbi was coming into Jerusalem that he would say two or three benedictions as he walked in he'd bow his head 
he'd double over till the skin on his chest would fall in folds and he would look so pious and so together. They were the most religious men in Israel, the Pharisees. And he'd tell you how that people revered them so much that a captain in the army would withdraw his foot from the stirrup till he got through with his benediction. If a snake curled around a man's leg, he would leave it alone till the benediction was over. That much had, that's how much they respected the Pharisees when Jesus come out of his fourth chapter of Matthew into the fifth chapter the first his first messages in Galilee came out condemning the Pharisees he'll tell you all about their daily life in this give you a lot of things to think on and that well that was this one here that's the same thing here and then he had one called the temple its ministry and services I don't know that I have that it's the white one right there next okay here it is right here he will tell you about the temple, the rituals of the temple. A lot of things when I talk to you about the temple come out of this. The picture on the front is the temple picture you always draw. Yep, right there. He will tell you, gosh, I don't want to get into it right now. I'll probably get into it later. But he'll tell you about the temple. He'll tell you why the Pharisees were called whited sepulchers. You remember that story? They were called whited sepulchers. And uh, then he's got one called the history of Israel. The history of Israel, he gives you Israel's history as a kingdom, tells you a lot of interesting things that you don't know about it. That is Alfred Edersheim. Back over here to, back over to the Greek now, in order to study, I've got some books about Stoicism, Epicureanism. Paul ran into some Stoics and Epicureans in Acts, the 17th chapter, on his second missionary journey. When he gets to Athens, over here in Athens, right here, Athene, right here, and he goes outside the city and goes to a place called Mars Hill where they had statues to every one of their gods. And they even had a statue to the unknown god. They said, just in case we miss one. And that's where Paul said. Now, Paul's writings, Peter was a missionary to the Jews. Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. Paul's writings will have to do with Greek culture. Because when the Bible talks about Greeks, it's talking about everybody in the world that's not a Jew. Actually, Romans at that point in time. But because they kept to the Greek culture and languages, they were called Greeks. The, when the Bible says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond or free, there's neither male nor female, we are all one in Christ. It doesn't say there's neither Jew nor Romans. Because everybody that was in Rome and the Roman Empire was considered a Greek by culture and by language. Now, this is the guy I want to talk to you about over here, about, about the culture, 
the languages, the sayings. I've got a book here. I want to talk to you about this. It's called Life from the Ancient East. This is one of the best writers I have ever seen on the Greek culture of the first century. His name is Life, his name is Diceman, Adolf Diceman. He had, this book was written by Mr. Diceman somewhere back in the early 1900s, late 1800s. I don't know how long it took him to write it. Did a tremendous amount of research. Unbelievable amount. I've mentioned stuff he says once in a while, but I've been studying the extra, putting a lot of extra time in his book lately. He's also got some books on biblical studies. He's got one book on Colossians. Colossians. And it's about, it'll give you things about Colossians 2.14. That's what I'm going to talk about tonight. Some is Mr. Edersheim's book on, now some of the things he'll say, he mentions, I've gone through my library. I've got several thousand books in my library at home. And I've gone through my library and I've looked for this word that he talks about. M-A-N-U-M-I-S-S-I-O-N. Manumission. I found manumission in his book. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve times in different pages. I couldn't find it in any of my other books in my library. I hadn't found them yet. Not in McClinic and Strong, not in not in Hastings. Maybe in Hastings, I haven't checked them out yet. Manumission, let me read you his definition of it. Manumission is and this has to do with Colossians two fourteen. And I don't know how to explain all this to you. Now, I'm not saying that everything he says is exactly right. I'm just, he has a lot of information that I'm going to, I'm trying to assimilate. And it's just overwhelming. He tells you that manumission is the being freed from slavery, the emancipation of the Gentiles out of slavery to Satan. That would have to do with redemption. Let me raise this. We're going to talk about the Greek culture tonight. And you have to know that there's a separation in it. Otherwise, you cannot understand it. I'm going to go take you over here to 1 Corinthians the ninth chapter. Let's go over there. A lot of the things that Paul said were spoken in the magical papyri or papyrus. Papyrus. 
magical meaning that came out of the magicians of the ancient world. It'll say from the London. This is a place in London where they keep a lot of these documents that are written on papyrus paper. If you remember when you was in school, the teachers said they wrote their ancient documents on papyrus paper. They would write on papyrus, but papyrus would decay after so long if they didn't keep rewriting it. That's why they had to rewrite all of the text of Scripture because they would wear out, especially if they were using them. That's one of the reasons why the Westcott and Hort is not as old as the Textus Receptus, the TR, because they used the TR while the Westcott and Hort sat in the, uh, like Mr. Pickering says, sat in the Roman Catholic wastebaskets, that's the way he puts it, wastebaskets in the Vatican till 1881 when Mr. Westcott and Mr. Hort dug them out. They were called Codex Aleph. Codex A and Codex, Codex B, Baeth. Codex, a Codex is the word Codice, C-O-D-I-C-E. A Codex is one manuscript. These manuscripts were repeated. I'm not going to go into that right now. Manuscripts. And they were copied by these copyists. Now, the fact that they used the the TR, they were wearing out and they had to keep rewriting, not rewrite the text, but copy the text down exactly. And the copyists were always fervent about being exact. The copyists of the Westcott and Hort were not. They changed that. In fact, 995 out of 1,000 Westcott and Hort disagree with their text. Only 5 out of 1,000 agreed. 995 out of 1,000 of the TR agreed with each other, and the only time 5 did not agree was due to some clerical error. So that's one of the main reasons I believe in the TR, or the Texas Receptus. Now, I want us to go over here. If you're going to read this book, Life from the Ancient East, you've got to, you've got to uh, look at Paul's writings. I believe he wrote Acts. Some people don't believe that. So you have to read Acts. Study the Greek culture in Acts, Romans, Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and I believe he wrote Hebrews.
Now, people can argue about that. I don't really care how much they want to argue. You had, in order to study these books, you got to study the culture and the languages, the idioms and the metaphors of the Greeks. You won't find a whole lot in here about Jewish culture and customs. The sayings will be Greek. Now, let's read this over here in 1 Corinthians. If you're going to study Paul's writings, it's a real good idea. They quit printing these. You can probably get them somewhere online. It's just an unbelievable book. But when you're reading, you're going to run across words you don't understand. Keep reading. Or get you a dictionary, even a Webster's Dictionary, this collegiate dictionary, and sit down with it. And as you're reading this, look up these words so you can find out what they mean. If you can't have that and you've got a, a biblical dictionary, use that. If you have a Zonerbun, use that. Use whatever you've got to use to understand. Now, it don't mean that every time I recommend a book that I agree with everything they're saying in it. In fact, some of these people don't use enough Greek words including Mr. Lightfoot. But I love his book because he's going to tell you some things. If you can find anything that says Hellenism, Hellenism or Hellas, I've said this before. Hellas was a term for Grecianizing The world. In other words, teach them their languages, their culture, their customs, their philosophies. They had a lot of philosophers, but like I said, two of the main ones were the Stoics. Remember, I said Zeno started Stoicism around 330, around 320 BC. A man named Zeno. And Stoicism had to do with. There, it wasn't as spiritual as Stoicism was. When we say spiritual, I don't mean righteous spirituality. I mean, they operated in the spiritual realm, which was evil spirits. And the Stoics believed that all matter was evil. They, Not the Stoics, the Epicureans. And they believed the only thing that you needed to do was eat and fulfill the desires of your flesh, and that was all the spirituality you needed whatever this flesh wanted. Now, I want us to read here in 1 Corinthians. Go over here to the ninth chapter and read down here in the 20th verse. Unto the Jews... I became as a Jew. He didn't say I became a Jew. <laughs> I became as a Jew so I could talk on their level. I'm talking to Pharisees. I'm talking to uh, Sadducees. I'm going to come as a Jew to the Jew. And then he says that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, I'm going to become as though I'm under the law even though he wasn't. 
that I might gain them which are under the law. To them that are outside the law, Gentiles that know nothing about God, I'm going to talk to them in their lingo. As without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are outside the law. I love this next phrase. To the weak became I as weak. I've said this before. If you're around somebody that's poor and needy, don't raise yourself up above them and say, I'm smart and I'm better than you. Get down on your hands and knees with the needy and the downtrodden and say, are you okay? Can I help you? Get down with them. Come down to their level. In order to be able to help them, if you lift yourself up, you go nowhere. To them that are weak, became I as though I was weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. That's what he's talking about here, is what Mr. Dysman says in his book. And he will tell you how Paul uses all these words. Now, let me start off by saying this. Paul would have, I'm going to read some out of Mr. Dysman's book. Paul would have had no open door if he had not been to the Greeks, quote, a Greek. In our context, if he had not in the Hellenized world, Hellenized means the Grecian, to Grecianize people, to teach them the language, the culture, the customs, the idioms, the metaphors. That's why if you can find books on Hellenism, I've got a book on Hellenism in my library at home, and I take it out once in a while just to read through some of it, just to get an idea of some things that they did. In our context, he had not, in the Hellenized world, spoken to Hellenized men in Hellenistic popular language. Now, some of the things he's going to go through here, he's going to tell you that they already preached these things, some of the same phrases in the mystery religions. That's why it will say in the magical papyrus that's in London where they keep these ancient papyri, they'd either write things down on papyrus or in cylinders. Cylinders are made of stone. He will talk about how they handwritten, handwriting, they wrote on stone. I got too many T's in there. Handwriting on stone was a contract. Well, we've been talking about that, haven't we? When the Bible says, Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. And I noticed, I noticed that Mr. Uh, Diceman doesn't stipulate something I stipulate, and I can't find hardly many men that do. When I, I stipulate something about the law, There's something that they have a hard time separating in the law. The spiritual 
and the letter. The letter is what is written, according to the Bible, either on tables of stone, on fleshy tables of our heart. Look at that verse there in Colossians 2.14, or I'll just quote it to you. Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, which was against us. It was contrary to us, took it out of the way and nailing it to his cross. What was blotted out? I believe some of the people that write about it, they think the law was blotted out, and it was not. It was the letter that was blotted out. What was handwritten? The spiritual was never blotted. Let me just show you a couple of verses on that. Let me set this over here. I may come back to it here. Let me show you a couple of verses on the law. Is the law with us? Can you kill? Can you steal? Isn't that written in your heart? That's the spiritual. That wasn't blotted out. Can you covet? You're not supposed to. Do you do it? Yeah, you probably do. Until God deals with you. Look here in Romans, the third chapter. We'll just look at some of these. Romans 3. I want to kind of... I notice they don't... Too many men don't stipulate that the spirit of the law is not the letter of the law. Romans, the third chapter. Look at verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Yea, God forbid, yea, we establish the law. The law is still here, but it's spiritual. It's written in our hearts. Remember, there's a part of you that's born again that can't sin. When you think of this, there's the inner man and the outer man. 1 John 3 and 9 says, Whosoever is born of God, the inner man, cannot sin, because God's seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin. 1 John 1 and 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So the outer man keeps sinning, and the inner man cannot sin. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Cannot sin. So what's born again can't sin. Now, look over here in Galatians 5, 14. This may take a... It, it just, we can't get over all of this all of a sudden. Galatians 5, 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor that's what he told the rich young ruler he gave him five things but the, the the second six commandments are about the neighbor and Jesus left out one he said thou shalt not covet he left that out that was that man's that man's besetting sin but the first six first four commandments was about loving God and when you fulfill the second Six, you're loving God. That's what the Bible says right here. All the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. 
thou shalt love. But that word love is agape. Or agapao, the verb form of agape. And the Bible says this is love, Second John 6, that we walk after his commandments. But the commandments of God are written in our hearts. That is the spiritual part of the law. It was not blotted out. Is it? No, we've got that in us. We know what we're supposed to do. And look over here in Romans 13 and 10. We'll tell you that love is a hymn. Romans 13, verse 10. Romans 13 and 10. Love, or agape, worketh no ill to his neighbor. Love, agape, is a him. The Bible tells us the fourth chapter of 1 John, God is love. God is his own commandments. That's the word agape. And agape is walking the commandments of God according to 1 John. Now, so love is a hymn. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Love is the fulfilling of the law. When you have the commandments in your heart, but I keep saying, the commandments of God that are written in our hearts are not just the Ten Commandments. They are the Ten Commandments. The only thing that was blotted out was the handwriting of ordinances. Dogma. A dogma of a belief is what is written down. That is, a statement of faith is usually the dogma of a church or the dogma. It is what it is about. It is not what's written on tables of stone over here in the Old Testament, but what's written on our hearts, that's what's permanent. The law comes in two parts. I'm going to read some of these so you'll see it. Comes in two parts. In the spirit and the letter. All right. The spirit. The reason I'm putting this on the board is so you can understand what part was blotted out wasn't the spirit. It comes in two pieces. Look here in 2 Corinthians 3. We're going to look at some of these. This is I'm trying to make this as simple as I can. I wondered how, and I've noticed most doctors of theology won't split the law. It's not the letter that's going to save us. The letter kills us because we can't keep the rituals of the law. The rituals of the law is the letter. The spirit is the spiritual that's in us, written in our hearts. Look here in Second Corinthians, the third chapter. Second Corinthians three, and let's read some of this here. All right. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles or letters of commendation to you, or letters? Uh, ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of men. What's in our hearts about you will be read of men, and what people know that we believe about you, Corinth. 
For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, the letter, ministered by us, written, there's a, there you go, written not with ink, as it was written on those parchments and on those pieces of, and those tables of stone in the Old Testament, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. It's written in our hearts. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency, our diakos, our ability is of God, who also made us able ministers of the New Testament. Remember, Jesus said this cup is the New Testament. To drink of a cup means to undergo a death. Minister, diakonos, that's a household slave, of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth the fact that you can't keep all the rituals of the law, but the Spirit giveth life. There's two parts to it. One part has been blotted out. All those rituals of the Old Testament were blotted out, but we are still under the law. Every time you have an imperative mood in the Greek, that is as much a command as thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. I've used these words, humble yourself under the hand of God. That's imperative. That's a command by God. Any in at the straight gate, he says, strive, agonize entering in. That's an imperative. He says, the Bible tells us that straight is the gate and narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. Only few will agonize. Paul, uh, Jesus said, Luke nine twenty three, any man after me, let him deny himself, take and follow me to be in the same way with which is the narrow way. And all of those are imperative commands. So if you really believe God, you'll be humbling under the hand of God. The hand of God is evil man. When evil men do you wrong, they're supposed to. God is dealing with you, not them in that case. When you agonize, you're struggling with the flesh, with your own flesh, with that outer man. Deny, opera nail, my means to utterly contradict yourself. Take means to bear up in the air your daily cross. Follow, to be in the same way with akulatheo, the way is narrow, narrow is the word tribulation. You have to go through tribulation. It's not tribulation if you want to fight people while they're persecuting you. You want to fight people? It's not tribulation. It's kind of like saying, well, I'm going to war, but uh, I'm trying to have a peace with these people, but I'm not going to have a peace with them. I'll go over and shoot them while they come out with their white flag. No. Now, so he says the the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Look at Romans seven and six. Romans seven. Romans seven and verse six. All right, I can't get my pages to turn. They're old. Seven. And six. 
Now we are delivered from the law that being dead, wherein we were held, we were captive to the law. That's what the Bible is talking about. Uh, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us. We were captured under the law before we came to the knowledge of Christ. We were prisoners and we have to be released from prison. Remember the word forgiveness, forgive. Ness. Aphesis means to pardon. And God pardons us and releases us from prison when he writes upon our hearts. When he writes upon our hearts, self has to go and the letter has to go and we depend upon Christ. And that's when we're released from our bonds, from our bondage. So he says that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We're not serving God in the rituals of all the rituals of the temple where the priest had to go into there every day and offer certain sacrifices off of this altar and wash themselves in that brazen sea every day and come in here and light these candles and offer this bread offering to God and, and offering incense and, and once a year to come into the, the high priest would come in here in the Holy of Holies and offer a lamb's blood from this altar here. All that's blotted out. We're the temple of God. Our hearts are the Ark of the Covenant. The law is written on our hearts, on fleshy tables of our hearts. We're the bread. Our prayers of the saints are the altar of incense and the seven candlesticks is the seven churches of Asia are the refined church. So that's us. That's all spiritual now. And without understanding this, you can't understand what we're talking about. Look here in look here in Romans two twenty seven. Two and twenty seven. And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law. You transgress the letter of the law simply by saying circumcision makes me a Christian. You have to be circumcised of the heart because he goes on to say, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision was outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter. A letter is written with the hand. That's a handwriting. Anytime you see letter, that's a hand writing. I'm not going to read all these that I've got, but let me read a couple of more of these. Look here in Hebrews 10, 8 and 10. Hebrews 8. We are spiritual Israel, spiritual Jews. The law is written in our hearts now. And that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 8 and 10. Hebrews 8. And verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. We're the house of Israel now. 
Christ is the son of his own house, whose house are we? The inner sanctuary was called the house of God. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant stayed, and the law was written on tables of stone. That's written on fleshy tables with our heart. God's going to blot out what was written on tables of stone. That's written in our hearts, and we know how we're supposed to live. In those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be my people. Look here at Hebrews 10. In verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them, talking about his people. He's talking about the church. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, in their minds will I write them. The part he's going to blot out is what is written on tables of stone, not in our hearts. And look over here and go back to some of the Old Testament verses. Look here in Psalms 37, 31. I just want to show you that the law is written in the heart of every believer and he knows how he's supposed to live. And when you don't live the way you're supposed to, God will deal severely with you. He did me. I have gone through a lot of bad health problems because of my attitude in the past. You have your attitude must change. We've got to get our... Some people say they wear their heart. Some there's an old saying: people wear their hearts on their sleeves. Get your heart off your sleeve. Quit being offended so easy. If you're offended, you need to be. Until you learn to accept the fact that's the way the world is. Psalms 37 and 31. 37. I think everybody ought to get this book. And as you're studying the Bible, especially Paul's writings, look at this book. It's 37. Oops, I'm on 30. 37, 31. The law of, of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. When the law of God is in your heart, you're obedient to his law. You won't slide. Look at 40 and 8 of Psalms. 40. And verse 8, I delight in thy will, O God, yea, thy law is within my heart. See, it was in the heart in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 33. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Be their God and they shall be my people. And I've got so much more on this. The Bible says the same thing in Deuteronomy 6, 6. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. Look at Deuteronomy 11. You see, the law has always been in our hearts. What God has blotted out is this ritual of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 11 and 18. 11 and 18. 
Therefore you shall lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be frontless between your eyes so you can see them all the time. In Psalms 119.11 Psalms 119.11 119, verse 11. This is the longest psalm in the Bible. Take time to read it. This is the longest book in the Bible. Longest chapter in the Bible, excuse me. Psalms 119. This is a favorite verse. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. His word is in our hearts. That is supposed to stop us from sinning. When people do wrong by you, you're supposed to leave it alone and say this is the will of God because he works everything after the counsel of his own will. I said to Dave today, it's not the good things you have to be thankful to God for. That's easy. It's the sin against you and people trying to do you in. That's what you have to be thankful to God for. The reason you're thankful is God is perfecting you and maturing you with the fire of these people. In all things give thanks. In everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning. And one other, Colossians 3. Colossians 3. There's all kinds of verses in here. I'm just giving a few of them. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing you, another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It's in your heart, in its spiritual songs, Spiritual is the word pneumaticos, P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-S. It means non-carnal. And Paul said this same thing in the fifth chapter, singing to yourself, fifth chapter of Ephesians, non-carnal. It is not non-carnal to have drums behind you and some guitar going... That's not non-carnal. Neither is it non-carnal as Southern gospel music, where they're just pointing God in the sky and getting ugly looks on their face and going, "God's wonderful, isn't he?" That's not non-carnal. That's show business. I don't believe in the gospel music that I used to sing, and I wouldn't even record the songs that I recorded. Don't believe in that. As I've gotten older. God's dealt with me. Now, what part was nailed to the cross? Is there any question about what was nailed? What was nailed to the cross is the ordinances, the rituals. People say, well, there's no tithe. The tithe is an Old Testament teaching. The tithe is a New Testament teaching. Let me just give you, if the tithe... The only thing that was blotted out was the rituals. The only thing that would have been blotted out concerning the tithe 
would have been some ritual if they if God had had you to swing the tithe back and forth like he did the sheaf on the uh Pentecost day of Pentecost where they waved the sheaf and, uh, before him uh, as they were doing the rituals of Pentecost the only thing he'd done away with was the waving of it the tithe was taken directly to the priest and given to him on the evening before the Sabbath before 6 o'clock before sundown had to be taken to him and presented to the priest Mary and I was talking about the tithe. Yes, let me give you something here in 1 Corinthians 11. The tithe is still in effect. How do people think that we pay for TV time? We've got thousands of dollars we pay in TV time every month. How do we pay for this building? How do we pay for the lights? We got five full-time workers. How do we pay for those salaries to get this word out to all over the world on TV and about 200 towns and cities and, and on the Internet 24 hours a day? We've got people working on it. You can't do that free. But all of our DVDs we give away free of charge. We never charge anybody anything for them. I never ask for money except for the needy that's all i never ask anybody for any money i believe that people who really believe in this message will will tithe to it now look here look here in first corinthians the 11th chapter i'll get it in a minute or the ninth chapter i'll get it in a minute all right now, I'm going to read something here to you. If the tithe was done away with, then only the rituals are done away with. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration from God and is profitable. Doesn't it say that? All Scripture. Second Timothy. Well, let me give you that real quick. Look here. All right. Second Timothy three and verse sixteen. All scriptures given by inspiration of God means it's God breathed and is profitable. If it's about the tithe, then it's profitable, isn't it? For doctrine, didache, for instruction, for reproof. For correction, for instruction in righteousness. If all scripture is given, then the Old Testament is scripture, isn't it? Look at Malachi 3. Malachi 3. When you tell people the tithe is not scriptural, you know what they do? I've had that happen here. They quit tithing. Had one guy made $700 a week. He gave $70 every week. Some guy across town told him, Old Testament tithe is the, just animals and, and uh, food. The Jews lived in a barter system. If they lived, when they were in those coming back, they all had to bring half shekel if they couldn't bring, if they couldn't bring a lamb, 
They certainly couldn't drive him a thousand miles. Here's the, they're coming back to these three festivals. And some guys over here in Rome, and he's a believing Jew, he can't drive the lambs all the way over here. He had to sell the lambs, bring at least a half shekel over here to Jerusalem to buy lamb in Jerusalem. And there wasn't anything wrong with selling lambs in the temple. I used to be a gospel singer when we were going to a church, an ignorant independent Baptist church or Pentecostal church. They'd say, you can't sell your records out here in the foyer because they sold their lambs in the temple and Jesus come in and beat them with whips. No, 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 no. It was the money changers. The Jews required that you buy any lambs in the temple with Jewish money, and the standard of money exchange throughout the world was Greek. And they'd give them 60 cents on the dollar or 50 cents on the dollar and cheat them. Jesus said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. You're lying to the people. They have to buy a lamb. Some guy's coming from way over here, coming from Carthage. Coming from Cyrene, he's coming from Carthage over here. And he's going to bring lambs over on a ship? No. He has to sell the lambs there, make sure he gets here with at least half shekel to buy lamb. Had to do that. And look here in Malachi. Malachi 3.8, will a man rob God? You have... And I don't normally preach on tithing, but it came in, it comes in handy here. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me, but you say, Wherein have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now, herewith saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open your windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. God is, I believe a man can live on 90 cents on the dollar better than he can live on 100 cents on the dollar. I believe he can. I tithe. Mary tithes. I don't ask her what she gives. I know because I'm the preacher and she gives me the check. But I don't discuss it with her. And she knows what I give. But we don't talk about it. I don't ask her what I should give. She don't ask me what she gives. But we tithe. Go back over here to 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. 1 Corinthians. And Paul is talking about, we're talking about the rituals of the law. If there was no... If there was anything in the law about a ritual with the tithing, you had to wave it around or jump over it or spin on it or something. Uh, that's the only thing to be done away with. There was no rituals with the tithe. No ordinances. They just took it to the priest and handed it to him. And he says here, this whole thing is about the tithe right here. All right. Look here in chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, verse 7. Who goes to warfare any time at his own charges? Do you go to war and fight against the enemy and buy your own rifle and buy your own bullets and buy your own sword and buy your own knife and your own dagger and buy your own shield? No. 
The government you're working for buys that. And the government you're working for is the church. Who planteth a vineyard and doesn't eat of the fruit thereof? You mean you plant a vineyard? And Paul is saying, you should be feeding me and supplying me what I need to do this work. Or who feedeth the flock and doesn't eat of the milk of the flock? Then he says, say I these things as a man... Or saith not the law the same also? He is saying the law is still alive here. The giving is still alive. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God not care for oxen? The oxen would go, they would have a, a, a bridle around the ox and it would be a post here and he would walk around and tread out the corn he should be able to he should be able to lean over and eat of that corn that's what Paul is saying he should be able to eat of that for it is written in the law Paul is saying the law is still alive here but the ox is himself and any other preachers is what he's saying for it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God not care for oxen? And I'm the oxen that's treading out the corn. Shouldn't I be able to eat of what I am bringing to you? But Corinth was a bunch of cheapskates. You find that out in Second Corinthians, the 8th chapter. They had to go to Macedonia to get money. Paul said, I'm not going to force you to give. But Paul had to go up here to Macedonia, to Philippi, to get them to pay their bills. He had to get money from Macedonia, Philippi, for Corinth, because they were bums. They wanted a free ride. A lot of people want free tapes, and I'm... And hey, I'm not don't regret giving you free tapes, but you should do what God said and support the ministry. It takes money to pay these lights and it takes about thirty five thousand dollars a month to break even with this ministry. Break even. And then he says Or saith he it altogether for our sakes, for our sakes no doubt. This is written that he that plows should plow in hope. I'm out here plowing the field. I should plow in hope that you'll supply my need and pay my rent and what I need to eat and getting this message out to the church I'm going to and the church I'm coming from that tried to kill me and you should be willing to take care of my wounds and take care of me. Then he says that he that thresheth in hope should be able to partake in hope. Then he says some wonderful things. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, I preach to you the word of God, is it a great thing that we should reap your carnal things? Nothing wrong with the word carnal. It's the word sarks. He says the money that we need to operate is carnal. We need that to live in these fleshly bodies. Shouldn't we be able to reap that? And then he says, If there be others, be partakers of this power over you. 
Are we not rather? We're the ones that should be able to say to you, you need to be giving what's needed. And then he tells you it's the tithe. He comes through here and says that. Nevertheless, we have not used this power. I've got power spiritually to tell you this is your duty. But I'm not going to force you to do it and make you feel guilty about it. But suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. I'm going to not going to make you do this. I'll go to Macedonia and I'll get help from there. If you just, he told them in the third chapter of this same book, he said, your children, your babies, you're, you need meat of the word, but I have to feed you with milk because you are, you're carnal. You're full of dissension and strife in the church. And that's why they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Do you not know? Now, here we go right here. He tells you what it is. People say the tithe is not in the New Testament. It's right here. Right here. There's some famous preachers who say it's not in the New Testament. You guys are not reading. It doesn't have to say tithe to be in the New Testament. Is Hebrews in the New Testament? Yeah. Does it say tithe there? Yeah. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar, this is very important right here. Those who wait around the altar are partakers with the altar. Those who waited around the altar of God. He's talking about Old Testament here. Those that wait around this altar, they're partakers of the altar. They offered, they offered lambs and goats and bulls on that altar, depending on what the prescribed sacrifice was for the day. And they had a flesh hook that reached down to that altar, and they partook of that altar. They were on duty for so many days. They had to come in here and they had to eat. They ate from that altar and from this table of showbread. So we're supposed to be partaking of that as preachers. And then he says these great words. If they're of the altar, even so hath the Lord. Kai is the word. Even. Kai. In the same way that these men around the altar partook of the altar even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel the same way these guys partook over here. The preacher over here is they're supposed to take. How did they live of the altar? Well, the Bible will tell you exactly how they live of the altar in Numbers 18. These are the Levites. He's talking about these guys here. Numbers 8. I didn't say this. People say, the tithe is not in the New Testament. You're out of your mind. You think God would just wander around and let you do what you want to do? Well, now, I want you to take your cross and die daily and do all these other things, but kind of wander around about what you want to give to God. When you stop giving to God what belongs to Him, your life goes down. This guy quit giving $70 a week started giving about $20 every two or three months. He went from 70 a week to 20 because some guy crossed time and said, the tithe is not spiritual. 
He said the tithe was nomos. God wanted 10% of the nomos. Is that insane? That's the word law. 100% of the law belongs to God. You can't give him 10% of the law. I just thought, are you crazy? And he got some people to come to his place instead of them coming here, telling them this kind of garbage. Now I go over here to Numbers 18. Those that minister, remember these words. Those that moved, that lived around the altar, they partook of the altar. What did they partake of the altar? Ten percent. Ten percent. Numbers, the 18th chapter tells you that exact thing. That these Levites ministered around the altar and they got ten percent. In the same way they received the tithe goes to the preacher. I don't take this money from me. I'm trying to preach in churches and I'm trying to preach to Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Bernardino, San Jose, and all those towns around Los Angeles. I'm trying to preach to the people in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, Manhattan, the Bronx, we're on TV up there. I'm preaching to people in Boston, Philadelphia, down in Charlotte, down in Atlanta, in Roanoke, Virginia, in Des Moines, Iowa. We're teaching all over Kansas. We're teaching Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Beaumont, San Antonio, Austin, all over southern Louisiana. You think I've got a money tree in my backyard? In order to pay these TV stations, it takes the tithe. It's like pastoring a whole bunch of churches at once. Then he says over here in Numbers, the 18th chapter, this will tell you about those that ministered around the altar. I'll read one verse, and then I'll go to the rest of the chapter. Numbers, the 18th chapter. He says, he's talking to Aaron, the head of the high priest. He's the original high priest. And he says to him and his sons, which were high priests, verse 7, Therefore thou and thy sons, Aaron, with thee, shall keep your priest office for everything of the altar. What does it say over there in 1 Corinthians? Those that minister around the altar should be partaken of the altar, even so in the same way the preachers are supposed to be partaken of the altar. Huh? I'm looking at verse 7 of chapter 18 of Numbers. Therefore, Aaron and you and your sons shall keep your priest office for everything of the altar within the veil, and ye shall serve. I have given your priest office unto you as a service of gift, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. And then he goes into the heave offerings, was a compilation of all the offerings together, and he goes on down here in, I'm not going to read all of it, in verse 14. Everything devoted in Israel shall be thine, Aaron, you and your sons. Everything that openeth the matrix. The firstborn opened the womb of the woman when it was born. The firstborn was the priesthood, and God substituted the Levites for that, which 
they bring unto the Lord, whether it be of men or of beasts, shall be thine. Nevertheless, the firstborn of men shall be surely redeemed, and the firstling of the unclean beast shall thou redeem. But God substituted the Levites, the thirdborn, for the firstborn Reuben. Those that are to be redeemed from a month old, thou shalt redeem according to thine estimation for the money of five shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 gerahs. But the firstlings of the cow, of the firstlings of the sheep, or the firstlings of the goat, thou shalt not redeem. They are holy. And then he goes on down here and says, in verse 20, The Lord spake unto Aaron and his sons, Thou shalt have no inheritance in the land. That's why they were never numbered to the rest of the people. That's why they were taken care of by the ministry. I don't work a job. I'm too busy teaching these truths and looking after the ministry. Neither shalt thou have any part among the children of Israel. The Bible says they were not numbered over and over again. I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. Behold, I have given the children of Levi, which is the which is the thirdborn of Jacob, because they were the priesthood, all the tenth in Israel that they ministered around the altar, and they're the ones that got the tenth. For an inheritance for their service which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, Neither must the children of Israel henceforth come nigh the tabernacle of the congregation, lest they bear sin and die. The only people come to the tabernacle of the Levites, that's the priesthood of God. They ministered around the altar. They get the tithe. The preacher gets the tithe like they did. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. People want to get mad at me for saying that. Neither must the children of Israel henceforth come nigh the tabernacle of the congregation, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do service of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they shall bear their iniquity and shall be a statute forever throughout their generations, that among the children of Israel they have no inheritance. That's why they're not numbered in Israel. And they lived all over Israel, and they had to give the Levites. If you notice, the Levites are not on that map. If you're in Judah, you had to give some land to the Levites to plow. If you're in Ephraim, Levites are there. If you're in Manasseh, Levites are there. If you're up there in Zebulun, Levites are there. Well, they're supposed to be there until they went south because they brought in that hellish doctrine of Ahab and Jezebel, Baal and grove worship. They have no inheritance. They shall have no one in verse 4. 24, but the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer as an heave offering unto the Lord, I have given to the Levites to inherit. Therefore, I have said unto them among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. Look back here. I'm going to come back to that, but look back here in Numbers, the first chapter. In Numbers, the first chapter, verse 47. But the Levites, after he's numbering all the tribes of Israel here in the first chapter. But the Levites, after the tribe of their fathers, were not numbered among the rest of the tribes. For the Lord has spoken unto Moses, saying, Only thou shalt not number the tribes of Levi, neither take the sum of them among the children of Israel. They're pointed to the tabernacle in verse 50. In Numbers 26, 62, it says the same thing. 
Numbers 26, 62. And those that were numbered of the of them were twenty and three thousand, all males from the month on up, for they were not numbered among the children of Israel. This is talking about the Levites. So their inheritance was the tenth. That's what the Bible says. Back to Numbers the eighteenth chapter. We'll just read a couple of these. You can see the whole idea. The heave offering was the total offerings they had to offer. Verse 26, Thus saith, Thus speak unto the Levites and say unto them, When you take of the children of Israel the tithe which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall offer up an heave offering of it unto the Lord every tenth part of the tithe. And this is your heave offering. Heave offering was the total offerings that was given among the Levites. And they had to tithe also. And reckon unto you, even though the corn of the threshing floor has the fullness of the winepress. They dealt with barter system. So they had to bring a tenth of the wheat, a tenth. They didn't have a lot of money. It was a poor nation. They brought their tithes in the form of wheat and sheep and goats. They had to convert it to money in order to give it if they come from a distance. Thus she shall... Huh? Well, they gave money if they sold the sheep. Right, if they were coming long distance. He says, coming long distance. That's what I said a while ago. If they're coming long distance to these feasts, they had to sell the sheep and get the money and travel 500 miles with it. Thus, ye also shall offer and heave offering unto the Lord all your tithes which you receive of the children of Israel, and you shall give therefore the Lord's heave offering to Aaron the priest. Heave offering was the total of all the offerings together. Out of your gifts you shall offer every heave offering of the Lord, and of all the best thereof, even of the hallowed part thereof. Therefore thou shalt say unto them, when you have, when you have heaved the best thereof from it, then it shall be counted unto the Levites as the increase of the flesh and poor, and as the increase of the winepress. And ye shall eat it in every place, ye and your households, and it is your reward for your service in the tabernacle of the congregation. Ye shall bear no sin by reason of it, when ye have heaved from it the best of it, neither shall ye pollute the holy things of the children of Israel, lest you die. Now, go over here to Hebrews the seventh chapter. People say the tithe is not in the New Testament. People don't like the tithe because they don't want to give it. That's why. That's why they turn on the teaching. I have, haven't taught on this in years. But because I was talking about the rituals, if there was a ritual in the, in the tithe, that's the only thing that would be done away with. It takes the tithe to live. If you tell people the tithe is not in the Bible, they quit. They quit giving hardly anything. You can't live without the tithe. I've got lights and tapes we give away and cameras and all the equipment and got a payroll of five full-time people. Don't tell me that. Hebrews, the seventh chapter. How much time do I have, Mike? Five. 
on me. I'm not going to be able to get through this. I'm going to have to come back next week and get into this book. It's talking about giving tithes in Hebrews, the seventh chapter. People say the tithe is not in the New Testament. You must be reading the wrong book. Jesus told the Pharisee, he told the Pharisees in Matthew 23rd chapter, you tithe mint and cumin and all the little herbs that you bring in, but you mean it omit the weightier parts of the law, which is truth and commitment and grace. He said, and that you should have done. You should have done that. But when he's nailed to the cross, the only thing that's nailed is the ordinances, the rituals. There was no ritual to the tithe. And he says down here in verse 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, which received the tithe, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change, metathesis of the law. There has to be a Meta thesis, a transfer of the tithe. It's talking about the tithe. There has to be a transfer of the tithe from the priesthood to the preacher. I'm not taking the tithe so I can buy more house or buy more cars. I got a 19 year old car I drive, it's a RAV4. Went in to have the oil change yesterday. The guy said it was a Rev Four came in the other day. It is a '96 model. It had five hundred thousand miles on it. If that'll go five hundred thousand miles, I'll drive it five hundred thousand miles. I could care. Five hundred thousand miles. Huh? Where are you going to go five hundred thousand? Drive the rest of my life <laughs> to the post office. <laughs> to the, I'll go back and forth to the post office fast again. That's the best car we've ever owned. Now, people get mad at this, but there's been a transfer. This right here says it was a transfer over to the preachers. Jesus told the Pharisees, you tithe mint and cumin. Look at that in Matthew 23. Matthew 23. I'll get back to this other. The only thing was blotted out was the ritual. There's no ritual with the tithe. And if you hadn't read the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians, and you say the tithe is not in the New Testament, it doesn't say tithe, but it's talking about it. It's talking about what was given the priesthood. They ministered around the altar. The Bible says so. People don't like that, but that's your problem with God. It's not with me. If somebody don't tithe, I don't chew them out. I don't even look at them bad. I say in time, maybe God will teach him. Matthew 23, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. He called them children of hell in verse 14. Uh, excuse me, in verse 15. He said they stole widows' houses in verse 14. And it goes all the way down here in verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, which are the smallest of herbs. And you have omitted the weightier parts of the law, judgment, mercy. He said, and faith. These ought you to have done and not leave the other undone. He's saying you were supposed to admit tithe, mint, and cumin, and anise. But you're not supposed to omit the tithe. And that was before Jesus was crucified. But 1 Corinthians 9 is after he's crucified. Hebrews, the seventh chapter, is after he's crucified. I didn't even mean to go here. Mary said one night, you need to teach on the tithe again. And I do need to. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm going to tell you that I believe believers that are committed to Christ need to tithe. Tithe means tenth. And what went to those priests around the altar? Here's the altar here. And this is the altar. That's the that's the covenant altar. Any priest who's ministered around this that what they received, the tenth, in that 18th chapter of Numbers, goes to the preacher. That's what the Bible says. I didn't make that up. You can deal with it if you're not deal with it. I'm out of time. I'll come back. I wanted you to see the difference between the letter and the spirit of the law. Because part of it was blotted out, and that was the ritual. The law wasn't blotted out. Laws in our hearts. You can't go out of here and break the law, can you? We keep the law spiritually. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for truth. Teach us what we need to know and our obligation to you. Thank you for truth. Open doors according to your will and your mercy. We will... Continue this work till we die. I get tired sometimes, Lord. Give me strength. Give Mary strength. And and the guys that work in the ministry, Dave and Tom and Mike, we need your help. And, Lord, the church needs strength to keep standing. Thank you for truth. We give you praise for everything. In Christ's name, amen. Fight our battles, too. Amen. What? P.S. Yeah, P.S. P.S. Fight our battles. Hey, Jim, seriously, at this point, you're on 400 to 500 cities. You're, you're on 200 cities and towns alone in just Ohio. Seriously. Really? Yeah. Are you being serious? I'm serious. You're talking about if we're on in one market, it's, it's hitting five or six. Like Ch- Chicago? That's hitting at least 70 alone. Really? Yeah. Well, it's too bad we don't get more calls. Dave should know. He's the guy that gets us on these places. You ought to see. You ought to see someday if you could count the towns. Just try to count them. Because if we're on in Los Angeles, we're on a whole bunch of places right now. All over there. 
San Fernando Valley. You know. Oh, on Riverside. I went on Panorama City. Yeah. Well, John MacArthur can watch us in Panorama City if he wanted to. Huh? What? We're on in Berkeley. In Berkeley, yeah, that's the home of the hippies. And also the home of the California Golden Bears. The what? The California Golden Bears. Oh, is it? University of um, California. Oh, I thought there was like a Golden Bear. No, they just call them, they call them the Golden Bears. You know the California Golden Bears. Yeah. He's jealous because it's packed well. <laughs> Well, I didn't mean to get on the tithes in that. I'm not sorry. No, it just was, no, there was no, no ritual no. with the tithe. It had to be a ritual. Yeah. If they only swung it around and swung it over the head and held it up there for five minutes, hey, that's all that would have been done away with. If you with. don't have to tithe, you can go out and kill people. That's right. That's right. Hey, when they didn't do that I was reading that though and I came upstairs. Yeah. But he's talking about if they had to travel long distance, they sold their sheep, they sold a tenth of the sheep and took it to the priest. Yeah, the sheep ain't going to be able to travel that. Distance. No, I don't think so. Get up there, hey, get up there, sheep, get on that ship. Clump, 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 clump.